You shouldn't even kill one bird with one stone. It's mushrooms, not mushrooms. What about a kite, but it burrows through the earth? How many duck eggs are out there tonight? There's more than one weed, people. If there are birds of paradise, are there also birds of squalor? How short can a vine be and still be a vine? The molten core of the earth is also outdoors. Never blunder into the path of a migration. So many stars! Hello, and welcome to the 31st episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and Out of All Doors is a podcast that always ends up exactly how it is. What you're hearing now is not out of the ordinary for Out of All Doors. Would I say that this is what it's supposed to be like? No, certainly not. But is this what it is like? Yes, it certainly is. In terms of what the podcast is about, as opposed to what it's like, well, that question is easiest answered by the following combination of two familiar words, one of which must be high in the running of the most familiar words in the world, the outdoors. Of those two words, the word which I was thinking is probably one of the most familiar words in the world was the word the. A lot of people want to know what making Out of All Doors is like. They want an inside view of the process. They want to know if all of the people mentioned in the show are real, or if not, they want to know which people are real and which people are not real, or which people are real but are using pseudonyms, or which people are using their real names but are sort of playing themselves as characters. The one character no one believes is real, of course, is listener Andrew, and in retrospect, trying to make people think that we would devote an entire episode to one real listener was a pretty transparent ploy to make people think we were eager to interact with our audience. People also want to know if my editorial control is as non-existent as it seems. People want to know which buttons I press in order to do pitch shifting in post. People want to know if right now, as I record this, if the battery is already written, if the person that they're hearing right now, this version of myself, at whatever time this is, already knows what the content of the battery in this very episode is going to be. People want to know if cousins Ben and Brent are really my cousins, to which the answer is a coy maybe, which you would be wise to interpret as a solid yes. Some people want to know if I consider the work of Felton Hausch to be on the same level as Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. And the answer is no. I think Felton Hausch is several levels above Blood Meridian because Felton Hausch wrote The Flood Was Flash, and I just finished Blood Meridian, and at no point in Blood Meridian did McCarthy write The Flood Was Flash. So the winner, I believe, is obvious. Some people want to know if they were to take one of Grang's segment ideas, make it better, and turn it into a TV show if Grang would sue them. Well, one person wants to know. She's named Linda. She wrote into the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com and asked, Dear Adam, do you think if I took one of Grang's ideas for a segment on the podcast, only made it way better, and then turned it into a popular reality TV show that he would try to sue me? At first I wasn't sure if the question was sincere, but then she closed the email by writing, Sincerely, Linda. So that right there eliminated any possibility that she was being insincere. The answer to the question is that he might want to, but that you have nothing to worry about, because he's probably just going to disappear at some point, and no one will ever know what happened to him. And also, my contention is that by making the ideas better, you remove the one element which makes them distinct to Grang, which is their level of badness. My point is that if you truly succeed in making them better, then they will no longer bear any resemblance to Grang's ideas. And if you don't succeed in making them better, then they have no chance of becoming popular reality TV shows 
shows, and Greg, if he hasn't disappeared yet, will have no reason to attempt to sue you. And just so we're clear, if he doesn't disappear and does have reason to sue you and does attempt to sue you, he will fail. Some people want to know if I get high when I'm making the visualization exercise. They don't really want to know, they just want to say that. Because some people's only response to anything they encounter that strikes them as strange is to speculate aloud about the highness of the person who made it. Some people want to know if the Dust Bowl Diary segment is ever going to return, which is a segment of which I have no recollection, and I believe that some listeners must have made it up just to confuse me and make me doubt myself. Some people want to know if they can give more than $1 to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash hugepop, and the answer is yes, but only a dollar is required in order to gain access to the bonus material. Some people want to know if there's going to be an amusing and informative list in the intro this time, and the answer is yes, but I'm stalling while I try to think of a topic for it. Alright, it's over six hours since I wrote that part of the intro where I was stalling and trying to think of a topic for a list, and a lot has happened to me in those six hours. I made a fortune and lost it. I gained a bunch of weight and then lost it. I did not get out of bed. Here's a list of tips for a successful lemonade stand. This list is for kids. My cousins and I, not Ben and Brent probably wasn't born yet, did a lemonade stand in Nebraska once when I was a kid, and I distinctly remember selling a few cups to a priest. So that's the experience I'm going to be drawing on as I craft this list. Number one, set up your lemonade stand near a church, priest's house, or any other structure likely to have priests in it. Number two, price your lemonade so that a priest can afford it. You're not going to want to price out priests. Number three, try not to have any blasphemy or heresy anywhere on the sign for your lemonade stand. Don't have any blasphemy or heresy on the cups either. Number four, if you're going to do your stand on a Friday and you absolutely must include a kind of meat as an ingredient in your lemonade, choose fish. Number five, don't serve the lemonade in quantities incapable of quenching a priest's thirst. Number six, maybe make the thing where customers put their money look like a collection plate. Number seven, for your sales pitch, say, I have a confession to make. This lemonade is for sale. Number eight, have the little radio at your stand tuned to the Gregorian Chance FM station at all times. Number nine, have a flag on your stand that reads, College students welcome, so it doesn't seem like you're pandering only to priests. Number ten, surround the lemonade stand with candles. Some people want to know, when the intro is a total mess, a jumble of ideas with no clear focus or point, how do I know it's done? The answer, my friends, is word count. Let's begin, shall we? I fixed the underappreciated nature segment, and I did it by ignoring every single listener's suggestion. I fixed it under my own power, using my own brain to come up with my own idea to fix it. And this is the episode where I implement that idea and the fixing of the segment is completed. Some may see my solution for fixing the segment as a compromise, but it isn't. Some may say, isn't this a lot like when Jason and Adam used to have conversations with each other on older episodes? But it isn't like that either. Let me explain. Are human beings natural? Of course we are. Humans are part of nature. So it stands to reason that a human could very appropriately be the underappreciated nature who's interviewed in the underappreciated nature segment. It doesn't just have to be a rat or a mulberry or a tapeworm. It can be a human. It can be a human. And which human, especially within the context of the underappreciated nature segment, is more underappreciated than the interviewer? So the interviewer, played by me, will interview the interviewer, played by me. 
I won't have to meticulously pitch shift either of their voices in order to differentiate them from each other. I won't even have to remember which one is which, because they're the same person, so it doesn't matter which one is interviewing the other one. See? Do you see how well this is going to work? This removes every opportunity for error. It requires no consistency, no organization. Some of you may be wondering if the original goal of the underappreciated nature segment was to just have a segment that wasn't riddled with errors, if perhaps it had a higher purpose, such as drawing attention to underappreciated things from nature and increasing people's appreciation for them. But the answer to that is who can remember? And the answer to that is also that all missions change once you get in the field and you see what conditions are really like on the ground. How long will you cling to your idealism? How long will you demand absolute purity from flawed institutions comprised of flawed individuals? The new goal of the underappreciated nature segment is to get through it without egregious errors. Once we can do that consistently, perhaps we'll be open to revisiting some of the segment's initial goals. We will ensure that the ship is watertight before we take it out on the open seas. It's only prudent. That's what I'm prioritizing now, prudence. I didn't think of that word until just now in this little preface to the new segment, but I'm now realizing that it's the perfect word to act as the guiding principle for the fixing of this segment. So as you listen to this interview of the underappreciated nature segment interviewer interviewing the underappreciated nature segment interviewer and possibly vice versa, please keep the word prudence in mind and look up the word if you don't know what it means. The segment has been fixed in a prudent way, and here it is. Also, the pitch of both voices has been randomized. Hello, interviewer. Thank you for being on the Underappreciated Nature segment on Out of All Doors. It must feel strange to be the one answering the questions. I was about to say the same thing to you. Yes, and you'd be perfectly justified in doing so, since we are indeed both the interviewer from the Underappreciated Nature segment. Of course, neither of us has actually asked or answered a question yet. True. So I guess it hasn't really been determined which of us will be asking and which of us will be answering. Right, but it doesn't need to be determined, because either of us can ask or answer at any given time. That's the beauty of this arrangement. But here's the thing. We aren't the same person anymore. We've said different things, and we've heard the other of us say different things, which has probably caused us to feel different things. For example, I'm the one who expressed this thought, and you're the one who listened to me express it. So our experiences are no longer identical, and who knows in which ways that divergence of experiences might change questions we might ask or the answers we might give. But it doesn't matter that our experiences have diverged. The audience doesn't care about that. They're just content to know that we are both equally qualified to represent the perspective of the interviewer for the underappreciated nature segment. The fact that our answers might be slightly different doesn't matter to them because they'll never know the difference. But what if our answers contradict each other? That will throw the whole segment into question. It will plunge us back into a state of confusion, of unfixedness. Why would our answers contradict each other? We've only been separate people for, what, two minutes? But look, already, I'm concerned about our differences and you're not. What does that say about how different we are, about the dissimilarity of our perspectives? We aren't interchangeable anymore. I'm the one who's worried that we're too different and you're the one who isn't. Now we have to keep who we are straight, but without even the assistance of our different names. Good lord, you're right, we're doomed! And we're even more doomed now that you're agreeing with me on how doomed we are. Our only hope of keeping us straight is to stay fixated on our one area of difference. But we don't have any areas of difference anymore. You convinced me. So does that mean we're back from the brink? Our identities have realigned so as to make us interchangeable enough for the segment to work again? No, because our differing roles in that brief conflict 
persuader and persuadee have certainly had a lasting impact on us, and that impact will certainly make itself known again in ways that we have no way of predicting. In a way, the realignment of our perspectives has caused both of us to slip into camouflage without actually addressing the root cause of our disagreement. We're hiding from ourselves, even. This is bad. This is bad. Or is it? I don't know. I'm of two minds on the issue. That's even worse. If you're dealing with internal conflicts, then who knows how many other perspectives you're spawning. I don't, I don't understand what you're getting at. You may contradict yourself, and in so doing, we might mistake your own self-contradictions for contradictions between you and me. You might end up playing two roles at the same time, and I might end up either being discarded entirely, or even worse, I might transform into a third role. We're not going back to the era of three roles. Never! You're right. We have to abort. We have to abort. Abort! 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 We go to our house. It's been years, but we're heading home. What a long trip it's been, although not particularly strange. The trip has been pretty normal in every way except for its length. The trip has gone as expected, from what we recall. And now we are home again. Home at our house, where we will soon be safely housed in our home. But hark, what's this? Did we forget to leave a light on in the upstairs bedroom? Because every other window reveals the wasteful artificial illumination of every room in the house, just how we like it. Except for the upstairs bedroom, the window to which is dark, just how we prefer not to leave it. Hmm, we make our pondering sound aloud. Could we have forgotten to leave the light on when we left the room? That isn't like us, but again, we left our house long ago. Who can remember the state we were in, in the moments before we left? We take our house key from its hiding place on top of the doormat. We used to leave it under the doormat, but could never find it when we needed it. We unlock our front door and get wedged in the doorway, each of us crying, I want to be first, I want to be first. Then, eventually, one of us is first, and the rest of us are losers, because as a no-fear shirt taught us in seventh grade, second place is the first loser. So it stands to reason that all places after first loser are also losers, but to an even greater degree. And we all go up the extra-wide staircase to the second story so we can investigate the upstairs bedroom for, well, you already know what it is. We enter the battery. You know, we've entered many batteries over the last few centuries, which is exactly how long our trip has lasted. You've heard first-hand accounts of 31 of the batteries we've entered, but there are many, many more batteries we've entered about which you have heard nothing. Not one thing. Did you really think we only enter one battery a month? Sometimes we enter a dozen or more batteries in a single day. In fact, our record for a single day is 155,000 batteries entered, which was accomplished by means of a provocative blend of science and magic. The fewest batteries we've entered in a day is zero, a record which we have tied many times because it is often the case that we have to travel for more than a day between batteries that we enter. Perhaps you'd like to know the total number of batteries we've entered during the course of our trip. We would too. Unfortunately, we haven't kept a running total, so we really don't know. Someday, maybe we'll try to sit down together and figure it out, but we can't make any promises. And for those of you saying, well, okay, if you can't tell us how many batteries you've entered, can you tell us how many you've left? The answer is yes. We've left 2,000,004 batteries. 
And for those of you saying, well, okay, if you know how many batteries you've left, isn't that the same as the number of batteries that you've entered? Or, since you're in the middle of a battery right now, shouldn't it be that you've entered one more battery than you've left? So shouldn't the answer be that you've entered two million and five batteries? The answer to all those questions is no, because you're operating under the mistaken assumption that we've left every battery that we've entered. But there are batteries beyond your conception that can never be left, just as there are batteries beyond your conception that can only be left, but never entered. And there are methods, there are techniques for leaving these batteries without ever entering them. And we have attempted these techniques, and we have paid the fair price for doing so. Yes, the entering and the leaving are two of the defining aspects of the battery experience, but there are batteries about batteries which, while yet entirely batteries, turn these concepts upside down or dispense with them entirely. We can't explain it. There are batteries in which we will remain for eternity, and we don't mean an afterlife, we don't mean immortality. We cannot explain, not properly. There are also batteries at which one can only ever straddle the threshold, neither entering nor leaving. There are batteries that enter you. There is a battery that leaves you the moment you're born and re-enters you in the moment that you die. There are batteries that you enter and leave many, many times before you even begin to become aware of them. There are batteries within batteries within batteries. Did you know that some theorists theorize that the entirety of what we know as the universe is nothing more than a battery simulated in a computer? Some theorize that we are all elements of a bat's dream, and that we all entered a battery the moment the bat's subconscious formed us. And when it wakes up, why, we'll leave the battery, of course, blinked out of existence. There are batteries that are not visible, only audible. Did we ever enter them? Or did we only stand very close beside them and their windows were wide open so that it sounded as if we had entered when we actually had not? In retrospect, we are perhaps too confident in the correctness of the figure we came up with for how many batteries we've left. We have accidentally trampled tiny batteries underfoot, microscopic batteries crushed between our clumsy fingers. It probably isn't fair to say we've entered batteries we've heedlessly destroyed, not that we'd be able to count them anyway, not that we'd ever wish to truly face the magnitude of these inadvertent tragedies, to truly know the scale of the loss. We have been thrown out of batteries against our will. Is being thrown out the same as leaving? Does leaving imply a certain degree of agency? Bear in mind that in all of these cases, upon being thrown out, we have always stood up, dusted ourselves off, cupped our hands around our mouths, and shouted, You can't throw us out, we're leaving. This makes us feel a bit better, but again, something we know but prefer not to acknowledge, we always do it after we're already out. And of course, we've been forcefully dragged into batteries, but enter feels like a word less tied to agency than leave does. We have entered batteries that turned out not to be batteries. How many batteries have we entered that were not batteries, but we still believe they were to this day? How many batteries have we entered and never known they were batteries? Maybe we were having off days and just couldn't sense the bats. Maybe the bats had good reason for concealing the batteriness of the place from us. We once encountered a battery of a solid substance, solid all the way through. It had no entrances, was not hollow, was impossible to enter. We scaled it, stood atop it. By doing so, did we enter it in spirit? Don't tell us what you think the answer is. No offense, but we don't value your opinion on the matter. There are batteries which, once entered and left, retroactively erase themselves from history like a man traveling back in time to prevent his great-great-grandparents from conceiving. These batteries effectively ensure that they never existed, though our memories of them persist. 
Can we truly be said to have entered and left batteries that never existed? And if so, what of all the batteries we've imagined ourselves entering and leaving in our fondest daydreams? Those don't exist, yet they exist just as much as those batteries which erase themselves from history. What about the changes that certain batteries wrought in us? Were we different people when we left than when we entered? How much do we really have in common with any of those people now? It's a question for philosophers, I suppose, but not Grang, of course. What about those batteries which we entered and left many, many times? Do we count each entrance as an entrance, each leaving as a leaving? Or do we just count one of each? Do batteries entered, left, or both outside of time count? Do batteries that were only entered by severed parts of our bodies count? You begin to see the enormity of these considerations. Batteries entered while sleepwalking. Batteries left while in a fugue state. Batteries entered by our clones. Batteries left by our doppelgangers. Batteries entered and left while we were fetuses in our mother's stomachs. Batteries entered in the off-season. Batteries about which we disagree as to whether they are batteries or not. Batteries giving rise to spirited debate. Batteries that fervently deny the battery label. Do we count them? Undercover batteries. Dare we out them just for our own statistics, securely though we keep them? Batteries that deny the existence of batteries. Batteries that refuse the distinction between batteries and non-batteries. Batteries so quintessentially batteries that we fear they are traps, and they are. But are they not still batteries, though created for sinister purpose? A prison for bats. Though it exists in opposition to bats, yet it becomes a battery. The kind of location it hates most of all. Anyway, we leave the light off. That's how they like it, so that's how we'll keep it. We've got to head out in the morning. There are so many more batteries to enter or not, and then leave or not. We go to the door, which is standing open. We walk through it, into our home, the house's hallway. We leave the battery. So Cousin Ben and Dwayne did send me a Regarding the Dawn segment this month, but I'm going to play you the only portion of what they sent me that I could salvage. One, two, three, check, check, check. Vocal sound supreme. Supreme like a taco supreme. Okay, let's see. Uh, now for the guitar. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay, now, Ben, why don't you beat those skins, man? I don't know. Uh, all right, fine. Yeah, man, that sounds killer. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. You ready, man? Uh, sure, I guess. So there it is, and I will say that uh, the segment they sent me was well over 15 minutes long, and that was that was it. That was the only portion that I could bring myself to actually put on the episode. So, uh, Cousin Ben and Dwayne, you, uh, I've tolerated you for this long, and 
if this is the best you're going to send me, if this is the best you can do, then that period of tolerance will be coming to a, a swift end. So uh, consider this your final warning. Regarding the dawn. Regarding the dawn. Regarding the dawn. Regarding the dawn. So you're alive. Of course I'm alive, Drent. Why wouldn't I be alive? Oh, uh, many reasons, but I suppose mostly because you stole a car full of drugs from a cartel. Um, well, I didn't steal it, and anyway, I'm done with that now. The cartel chapter of my pursuit of the login information of the old Out of All Doors blog is in the past. And in the immediate future, why, the attainment of the login information for the Out of All Doors blog. <laughs> all right, so so where are or Okay, I'm going to rephrase that slightly. Actually, where do you... Where do you think you are? Just outside of Phoenix, Arizona, Drent. And you'll never guess who I'm staying with. Uh, two, uh, two members of the Royal Mounted Police and Celine Dion. What? No, no, I'm here with the Crow Chief. What? You actually found him? Yeah. Well, I mean, we found him working as a team. Me, Sammy, and Teddy... Although, to be honest, Teddy really didn't contribute all that much. All right, what are you talking about, Grang? I feel like I'm I'm barely keeping up, and I don't know, even that feeling might be a mistake. It's a distinct possibility that I'm not keeping up at all. Well, I'll, I'll explain, Drent. So, a few weeks ago, we were driving on the 10, continuing to follow it towards Phoenix. All right, we were... so you are still in Canada. No, we're in the United States. Maybe you've heard of it? Did you cross any national borders since I last spoke to you? No. Then you're in Canada. Continue. So we're driving north on the 10 in Arizona in the United States, and we were in this really remote area, and I was driving very slowly on the shoulder of the road because Teddy was car sick, and I had to drive slowly because he had his head out the window so he could throw up. And as we passed this tiny dirt road, Sammy started freaking out and calling, Chief, Chief, Chief. I didn't know what he meant, so I drove past the road, but when I did, Sammy started pecking at the back of my head and shrieking and trying to flop over onto the front seat, presumably so he could peck at my face, too. So I stopped the car and backed up to the dirt road again, and Sammy started shrieking, Chief! Chief! again! Now, I've trusted Sammy before, and often to my own detriment, but there was something different about this, so I decided to give him another chance. So I turned down the dirt road and followed it for close to 30 minutes through these tall trees, and then after 30 minutes, there was another, even smaller turnoff, and Sammy started calling, Chief! Chief! again! So I turned down that little track, and 10 minutes later, we pulled up in front of a tiny little house tucked back in the middle of nowhere. And Sammy starts screaming, Chief, Chief, and trying to push his way out of the window I'd cracked for Teddy to puke out of. So I get out and open the door, and he comes flopping out, and he's flopping towards the house crying, Chief, 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 I get it, I get it, I know what he was saying, Greg, stop. So Sammy's making all that noise, and the front door opens, and there he is, the Crow Chief. That is a, uh... That's a truly bizarre coincidence, Greg. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear how you're going to make all of this fit with your various delusions. I don't have to make anything fit, Durant. It all makes perfect sense just on its own. Of course, the Crow Chief's been a little coy about a lot of the details. I've been able to use my detective powers of deduction to surmise quite a bit about what happened to him since he broke out of prison. All right, here we go. I'm, uh, I'm buckled in. Always so dramatic, Durant. 
Anyway, it all makes perfect sense, as I already said, and as you were about to say once I've explained it. The Crow chief, upon breaking out of prison, did the same thing that any wise citizen of Croton would do if he wanted to get out of the country quickly and safely. He used all the cash that he had hidden in his house to hire the local coyote to take him to Mexico, just like I did. Except you may recall that I ended up not paying for the coyote's services and had to flee from him on foot. So after a ride of just a few hours, the Crow Chief found himself in cloudy, chilly Des Moines, Mexico, just as I would do a short while later while in pursuit of him. Once there, he promptly set about establishing himself as the leader of the cartel. The details of that part are a little sketchy because he prefers not to talk about it, which I suppose is understandable. But anyway, then I enter the story, as do the feds that I saw in that van, which immediately forced the Crow Chief into hiding. He knew he needed to flee the country if the feds had somehow tracked him into Mexico, or maybe it was even the Mexican feds, but whatever the case, he didn't feel comfortable fleeing the country until he'd handpicked someone to deliver the drugs to the contact in Phoenix. Well, we know how that turned out. So once he had seen my safe, safe driving in the race and had chosen me to be his delivery man, he finally felt comfortable leaving the country since he knew that the shipment was in such safe hands. Now, he couldn't return to the United States, of course, and he couldn't stay in Mexico, so he hired a caribou, which is sort of like a coyote, except they take you into Canada. Unfortunately, unlike coyotes, caribou are notoriously unscrupulous, and so instead of taking him to Canada, the caribou brought him to where I crossed paths with him, a small cabin in the woods somewhere in the vicinity of Phoenix, Arizona. Poor guy thought he was all the way in Canada. Grang, what percentage of that tale would you say uh, you surmised using your powers of deduction? Well, I would say that I surmised the majority of the truest parts of it, by which I mean the parts that I surmised are the parts that I'm most certain about. As a detective, I trust my powers of deduction more than any other source of information, including eyewitnesses, DNA, etc. Let me propose an alternate theory. The Crow Chief broke out of prison, hired that fraud coyote in Croton to take him to Mexico, and got dumped in Des Moines, Iowa, just like you did. Unlike you, he immediately discerned that he was not in Mexico, he was in Iowa. So he set about trying to find a means... No, you're still not getting it. The coyote took both he and I to Des Moines, Mexico. It's easy to get them confused. Have you heard of the concept of sister cities? Yes, that, that does not mean they look exactly the same. Of, of course not. Sisters don't look exactly the same. But twin sisters do, and Des Moines, Mexico and Des Moines, Iowa are twin sister cities. There is no such thing. Yes, there is, Drent. It's only logical. If there are sisters and twin sisters, then it only makes sense that if there are sister cities, then there must be twin sister cities, too. Let me finish my theory, Greg. So so the Crow Chief finds himself in Des Moines, Iowa, in the United States. So he's very worried he's going to get recognized. He's probably been on the news for breaking out of prison. So he starts asking around Des Moines for a way out of the country. The only available option is this caribou guy you're talking about. So the Crow Chief takes it. And then unlike Croton's con artist Coyote, the caribou actually takes the Crow Chief to Canada, which is where you are. So in spite of all of your best efforts to keep from finding the Crow Chief, you did find the Crow Chief against all odds. And oh yeah, the Crow Chief was never in charge of the cartel. There was a reason everyone kept calling him the crew chief, and it wasn't their Mexican accents, which they did not have because they were from Iowa. The reason everyone called him the crew chief is because that was his, like, 
cartel title or something. Maybe it was connected to his obsession with that stupid racetrack. So anyway, now it just remains to be seen how, having found the man who possesses the login information for the blog, you have failed to get it from him. Well, Drent, your theory could not be more wrong, or, to be honest, outlandish. The amount of coincidence required for your theory to hold true beggars belief. Your theory requires lots of coincidence, too, Grang. What are the odds that the phony caribou would drop the crow chief right along your route to Phoenix? Well, Drent, perhaps my will shaped reality to some degree. Perhaps the universe has seen fit to reward my dedication to the pursuit of the crow chief. In my dedication, I've proven myself worthy, and fate conspired to bring me to the Crow Chief through circumstances that the outside observer would consider impossible. Your theory has me being rewarded with my goal for nothing but a series of blunders. Which do you think fate would be more likely to reward, Drent? Dedication or blunders? So you have the login information? Is that what you're saying? Fate rewarded you with the login information? Look, look, Drent, fate has brought the Crow Chief and I together. That's a clear sign that I'm on the right track. I found a wanted fugitive that no one else could find. Do you know how many other people are looking for him but can't find him? But he doesn't have the login information anymore. No. Where is it? He traded it to the caribou in exchange for the ride. Why would the caribou have any interest in that URL? Well, because the Crow Chief was out of money, so he told the caribou that Ald Ors is Norwegian for old country, which the caribou probably believed because Ald sounds like old. Though he wanted to use the URL for his caribou business because he takes people out of their previous or old country and into a new one, see? So it's out of Ald Ors, or translated, out of old country. I mean, it's a given that this whole saga would make me think less of you, Grang, but I feel like it's damaged my perception of the entire human race. Our blog was a free WordPress site. This caribou could have just made his own and called it outofoldcountry.com or whatever. It's not hard. Well, Drink, keep in mind that his business is illegal, so... So it behooves him to have a name that's difficult for the authorities to decipher. Except that's not even really actually Norwegian. Ald Ors is nothing. So it's even more difficult to decipher, meaning it's even more secure. It's perfect. <sighs> so now what? Well, Dren, I have no need to be in the cartel anymore, since no one in the cartel has the login information. So I sold the car with all the drugs in it for 600 bucks, and I spent it on one and two-thirds plane tickets to sunny Des Moines, Iowa where I'll confront the caribou and either request or demand that he deliver the login information to me at once. But I thought the caribou was from Des Moines, Mexico. That's that's where the crow chief hired him. No, no, he was in Mexico when the crow chief hired him, but he actually lives in Des Moines, Iowa. The crow chief was clear about that point. So you did not complete your delivery for the cartel. You sold tens of thousands of dollars worth of their drugs for $600, and then you used that money to purchase you and your two fat, awful crows plane tickets back to the city where they are headquartered. So so you're going to die. You're going to die, Greg. You keep making this mistake, Trent. The cartel's in Mexico. I'm going to Iowa. Well, this is probably the last time we're going to speak. Uh, so goodbye forever, I guess. Well, well, if, if it is the last time we're going to speak, which it isn't, I'd better tell you about my latest and greatest segment idea, which I suppose you'll want someone else to perform in my stead if I do die, which I won't. I unnecessarily nominate the saint. 
All right. When you finally die, which feels increasingly imminent, then I'm uh, I'm going to have to go back and scrub all trace of your involvement from every episode of Out of All Doors so that I can't be held in any way responsible for your increasingly foolhardy behavior, Grang. What I'm saying is that there will certainly not be any kind of Grang memorial segment performed by the saint or anyone. Right. There'll be no need for a Greg memorial segment. We're agreed on that. And so, since I will be livingly performing my own segment, let me tell you about it. It's called Segment to Be, and it chronicles my ongoing endeavors to have my own segment on Out of All Doors. It won't only be an inspiring object lesson in the virtue of dedication, it will also keep the listeners in constant suspense over whether my quest will succeed or not. There, there would not be any suspense at all, Grang. If the listeners are hearing you do the segment on Out of All Doors, then clearly you did succeed, and it's already a done deal. A done deal? Really? Great, I knew you'd like this one, Grant. Is there some sort of contract I need to sign? No, Grang, there's no contract, because there's no deal, and there's no segment, and there never will be. Grant, say that again now that I'm recording. This will make for a very dramatic scene on segment to be. No, Grang, I don't want you to have any recordings of my voice on you when they find your body. Goodbye. Bye. Summer has returned, and with Summer's return comes the return of one of Summer's most loyal companions, Scorchers, which are days wherein the temperature is high. Fortunately, Gentleman's Mills has many products specifically designed to torture the Scorcher, which is the closest rhyme we could come up with to beat the heat, the trademark of which is owned by the family of the woman who invented Mellow Yellow. Here are some products to keep you cool. Number one, Pill Cocktail. Take this combination of medications and your core temperature will drop from 98 degrees to room temperature in a span of hours that depends on your body mass. Iced Out Grill. This grill comes decked out with a solid block of ice upon delivery. Invite the fellas over and fire it up. Pre-plan for the soggy mess and these boys will be green. Chill Pill. Unrelated to pill cocktail, this pillow dispenses a steady stream of liquid nitrogen to aid your slumber. Pill Cockatiel. Unrelated to pill cocktail and chill pill, pill cockatiel is an adorable bird that can talk, but he can't pronounce the word peel right, so he delights us all with his requests to pill orange, please, pill cockatiel. Pure Cocktail. A politician once told us that this chilly, refreshing drink funds terror. Puritan's Mock Tail. Those devout settlers didn't have it easy, but they loved to play with a mock tail to get through the tough days. And now you can too. Hook the Gentleman's Mills Puritan's Mock Tail up to a car, mower, or butt and delight as the 18-foot tail of a rubber python drags behind. Pure Riddick's Mock Tail. For $12.95, Vin Diesel gets into character as the divisive Riddick and joyfully reads your English classmates' written works aloud, enunciating every typo and hoo-hawing every droning character description. For another four bucks, he'll nod to you knowingly so all the babes can see you take partial credit. Vin has certain blackout days wherein Gentleman's Mills may provide an alternate Riddick performer debatable merits. Once your shiny laminated merits come in the mail, take them bright-eyed to your favorite pop vendor. 
Try to pay for your pop with the merits and make sure you're bright-eyed and proud enough to guilt the vendor into accepting them. And ooh, will that pop taste nice and cool. Debutante's Carrots. These carrots have the chill of ice and the hardness of, well, ice. The gentleman's own very ice cruncher cat dentures. Activate these ivory needles and funnel that ice into your gaping maw. It'll be crunching so, so fast that it'll be all your tongue can muster to keep up and lick and sweep the icy pulp from your maw to your eager gullet. Best part? All that crunching and all you gotta do is open your mouth at the beginning and leave it open. Oscillated fan. This electric fan oscillated exactly one time over one decade ago. Window air conditioner, air conditioner. This air conditioning unit attaches to your already existing window air conditioner and helps it. Your biggest fan. The fan itself is not that big, but by purchasing it, you agree to dispose of any other fans you own that are larger than it or even equal to it in size. Fake nudity permit. Clothes got you too hot? Remove them all and walk around in public with naught but the Gentleman's Mill's fake nudity permit worn on a lanyard around the neck. Will it hold up in a court of law? No, it's fake, but it might fool a few outraged citizens long enough for you to retreat. Chills. An audio recording of the hats singing haunting melodies that will send chills up your spine on even the hottest and humidest of days. A ride to Walmart. For a fee that we consider reasonable, we will drive you to Walmart, and you can just be in Walmart for hours. It's got air conditioning. Breeze Finder. This little guy knows exactly where to stand to best feel the breeze. Unfortunately, once he finds it, you are going to need to use force to remove him from the spot so you can stand there, and he has a very low center of gravity and a grappler's love of grappling. The Heat Expert. This certified expert will vouch for you when you refuse to sleep on the top bunk because, quote, heat rises. For an additional fee, he will vouch for you when you cannot do a chore because it's, quote, too hot to move. The Jeffy. A cold can of Mountain Dew for pouring over one's own head. An action of such baffling desperation it could only be named after one man. That corpse feeling. Most agree that corpses are cold. This product makes you feel like a corpse. How badly do you want to feel cold? Extra sweat. Did you know that sweating is your body's natural way of cooling you down? Well, with Gentleman's Mills Extra Sweat, you'll need to guzzle water by the gallon just to keep your pores from splashing every last molecule of moisture in your body all down your armpits, leaving your insides an arid wasteland while your outside is as wet as a fully submerged sea lion. Get those eyes closed. Get yourself lying down. Recall what you know of the structure of the Kurosawa film Rashomon, whether from seeing it or simply hearing about it. Of course, its structure has had homage paid to it many times, and it has been flat-out copied many times. You may be more familiar with it from some of these homages or copies. I myself have only seen half of it while staying at my brother's apartment in Indianapolis in probably 2009. But you know what it means when someone says something is like Rashomon, right? Sure, everyone knows that. You find yourself on a stage at an outdoor amphitheater participating in a local production of a play called Dunce Upon a Mattress, which is a parody of the play Once Upon a Mattress, which is already sort of a parody of the story of the princess and the pea. The evening is humid, and a mosquito has eaten some of the human blood from out of your body. You are playing the part of worst townsperson, a role which requires no speaking, no singing, no dancing, and only one facial expression. 
although maintaining that one facial expression is not crucial to the overall success of the play, a fact which the drama critic from your town's newspaper noted in her review for some reason, but the review was favorable overall, so whatever. From your vantage point, mostly behind a slab of wood painted to look like a well, you see and hear a child in the audience who is not enjoying the play. Instead, she has brought along a somewhat younger friend and she is teaching that somewhat younger friend, a boy wearing overalls and a necklace, how to read. The boy is learning fast. The girl brought a whole stack of books with her and already the boy is asking if any of the books contain any critical essays on any of the other books. On stage in front of you, the play's titular dunce approaches the mattress and the audience, excepting the young girl and her younger friend, holds its collective breath in suspense as they wonder if now will be the moment that the promise of the play's title finally bears fruit. If the dunce will now be upon the mattress, but the dunce, aided by a special harness attached to a thin wire, bounds over the mattress and narrowly misses landing upon it. The crowd gasps at the near miss as the dunce prances away to the other side of the stage, no longer near the mattress at all. Maybe next time. You, having read the script, having been to all the rehearsals, and having participated in three shows a day for the last month, should already have some idea as to if and when the dunce gets upon the mattress, but somehow you don't. If the dunce gets upon the mattress at some point during the show, then you've spaced out and missed it every time. Did the drama critic's review mention whether or not the dunce gets upon the mattress? You don't recall. All you remember is that one part about you. You remember the exact quote. The listener, in their role as the worst townsperson, appears to have been asked to contribute one thing to the play, a facial expression. But here is the thing, dear reader, the play does not need that facial expression. However, it doesn't not need it either. In the audience, the younger boy is struggling with a word. With, he says, Quicks, uh, his tutor, the little girl, is patient. Sound it out, she says. Quicksaw, says the boy. Quicksot. His brow furrows in concentration. You can't take it anymore. Quixote, you shout from partially behind the fake well on stage, your assigned facial expression falling away. The word is Quixote. The younger boy looks up at you, naive, willing to accept your help too willing to accept your help. Ignore him, says the little girl, sound it out. The younger boy looks back down at the book in his lap. Quixotic, says the boy. Correct, says the girl. You blush crimson and slide all the way behind the fake well. You could have sworn the word the younger boy was struggling with was Quixote, as in the surname of the infamous and fictional Don Quixote, but no, the word the younger boy was struggling with was in fact the word Quixotic. In retrospect, if the word had been Quixote, then the girl, if she is a tutor of any quality, which she clearly is, would not tell him to sound it out, since the language the boy is being taught to read is English, and Quixote is not a word that conforms to the English rules of phonics. You can save this, hisses a voice at your elbow. You look down. It is the dunce on hands and knees behind a fake wooden barn, which should have been large enough for him to stand upright behind, but is not large enough for him to stand upright behind, because you and the dunce built it badly. No, I can't, you whisper back. The play is ruined. We just have to hide here behind these fake props until the audience goes home. The dunce shakes his real head inside the enormous papier-mâché head he wears during the play to make himself look like a more convincing dunce. No, he says, you can still make this, our third show of the day, a success. You can bring them to their feet. How, you ask? He tells you. 
You are hesitant, but you sense sense in his words. You walk out from behind the fake well, cross the stage to the mattress, and you get upon it. The audience is stunned, stunned with understanding. Stunderstanding? They stunderstand? It pays off, shrieks a hysterical man in the audience. The title of the play actually pays off. Anyway, they deliver the standing ovation that the dunce promised you, but for now, for this moment in time, he is not the dunce. You are, and you are also the worst townsperson. You are all of the play's roles, of which there are only two, the dunce and the worst town person, at once. You step off of the mattress and the applause recedes. The audience disperses except for the young girl and the younger boy. How do you say this word, asks the girl. She points at a word in the book in the younger boy's lap. Relaxation, says the younger boy. The girl nods. Correct. That's enough for today. Do you have my payment? The boy stands up, reaches into his pocket, and produces a torn scrap of tin foil, which the girl accepts. Now who's the dunce, you ask the dunce, gesturing at the childish financial transaction you've both just witnessed. They aren't dunces, says the dunce. They're just little kids. You're going to be 104 years old tomorrow, assuming you live through the night. He winks as if he knows something that you don't, which he probably does. There's probably not a person on Earth who doesn't know something that someone else doesn't know, and that includes dunces, the young and the younger, which are three big categories of human. You find yourself in the audience at an outdoor amphitheater watching a local production of a play called Dunce Upon a Mattress, which is a parody of the play Once Upon a Mattress, which is already sort of a parody of the story of the princess and the pea. But you aren't really watching. You are teaching a boy who is younger than you how to read. If you succeed in doing so, he has promised to pay you with a scrap of the first piece of tinfoil that was ever created, which is worth $15, which is pretty good money for a child of your age. You successfully teach him to read despite a bumbling attempt at assistance from an ancient actor on the stage. The play ends when the actor who attempted to assist your tutee in the pronunciation of the word quixotic dies of old age. As the audience disperses, the younger boy hands you your payment. You wander off through the park until you find a roving band of materials collectors, one of which purchases the scrap of tinfoil off of you for $13. You find yourself in the audience of an outdoor amphitheater watching a local production of a play called Dunce Upon a Mattress, which is a parody of the play Once Upon a Mattress, which is already sort of a parody of the story of the princess and the pea. But you aren't really watching either. You're being taught to read by a girl who is older than you. Quixote, shouts an extremely elderly actor on stage. Quixote, Quixote, Quixote. The actor is led to the mattress in the middle of the stage by the dunce and is made to lie down. Please don't applaud, says the dunce. Please sit down. Does anyone know how to stop an actor from shouting Quixote? You learn to read and pay the young girl with a scrap of tinfoil you found buried at the bottom of a chest full of gold doubloons. So you assume it's worth millions, and that's how much learning to read is worth to you. Because it is 2017, and no one is going to read to you anymore, audio is over. And now, as you open your eyes and return to your regular life, if any life can truly be said to be regular, take the peace of recognizing how something is like Rashomon with you this month, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the 31st episode of Out of All Doors. Here are this month's writing and performance credits. Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfuss, Ben Bird, Chris Nichols, Grang Lynch. The music credits are as follows. Casey By, J.J. Evans, Chris Nichols. And Aaron Eikenberry set up the technical stuff for me. Please rate this podcast. Please write a review. Please subscribe. 
I also have another podcast called Bedtime Stories and another concluded podcast called One Man's World. You can find them on iTunes or on my website, hugepop.com, where you can also find a link to the music I make as the mispronouncer. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash hugepop, where for $1 or more per month, you can get access to exclusive content. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in a month with the 32nd episode of Out of All Doors.